I want you to be as quiet as you can for just a second. Total silence if that's achievable in an acoustically terrible room. Be still. Can you hear it? Can you hear? I want to invite you to eavesdrop on God talking with God. Listen. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me for they were, pardon me, they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. But now, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Father, I'm...
stupefied. I, I don't know the word. I'm amazed that we get to hear what it's like for the triune God to have conversation among yourself. Now pray, Lord. Oh, how I pray that every person among us who hasn't had a fresh encounter with Jesus in a long time would be wrecked by the might and the power, the river, the constant flow of your love. I pray that every lost person would be radically, soundly converted, born again. I pray that every man and woman, every boy and girl who's walking in the flesh would be ripped from that devastating lifestyle and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to have a Jesus-exalting, others-oriented, church-loving, gospel-spreading pattern of life. And Lord, I take a moment just to pray for me because in front of my brothers and sisters, I confess I'm tired, I'm weary, got so many things I don't even know what to do about. So I'm asking, Lord, somehow, some way, through this passage and the preaching of it, that there would be a divine inbreaking on every heart. Lord, I'm praying now for the people who will not pray for themselves. I pray, God, that they especially will be the ones who leave this place with a biblical confidence that they have met the King, the universe. Meet us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon's already been prayed from Pastor Jim, it's been summarized faithfully by Pastor Brian. Verses 6 to 16 is what I want to look at with you for a few moments, but I want to look deeper than the words into the heart of the king who prayed it. In verses 6 to 8, Jesus bases everything he prays on his own obedience. No one else in human history has ever talked to God like this. I don't dare you. I counsel you against telling God that he should answer your prayer because of how good you are. That's what Jesus does in verses 6 through 8. He bases his prayer upon his own faithfulness. In verses 9 through 11, he focuses his prayer upon his own followers. He explicitly says that he is not praying for everybody, but he is praying for a precious few so in verses 6 to 8, the prayer is founded on his own obedience. In verses 9 to 11, it is focused upon his own followers. And then finally, in verses 11 through 16, Jesus seeks his Father's protection for his friends. Those are our three considerations. And the first one is in verses 6 to 8, Jesus bases his prayer upon his own faithfulness. Again, nobody talks to God like this but Jesus. And I counsel you never to talk to God like this because you are not Jesus. 
So as Jesus transitions the focus of his prayer from verses 1 to 5 into verses 6 to 16, he transitions from praying for himself and his own glorification to praying for his 11 disciples. That's verses 6 to 16. In the remainder of the chapter, 17 and following, or pardon me, 20 and following, he's going to pray for all believers, including you and me. There is application to us in the portion where he's praying for the 11 disciples as he transitions his prayer, the first thing he prays is not a request. He starts not with requests, but with reasons, grounds, supports, foundation for why his prayer should be answered. There are no requests in verses 6 through 11. There are only reasons. And the reasons are why Jesus believes that his prayer ought to find favor with God and be met with certain affirmation of its accomplishment in what he will later ask, request. Could you imagine talking to God about your burden for others? I'm going to pause there and say some of you are not burdened for others. So you can't imagine it. But for those of you who have a God-given burden for the good of others, for their eternal good, your concern for their suffering, yes, their temporal suffering, but especially the coming future suffering for all who will not bow the knee to Jesus, receive Him as Lord, appeal to Him for forgiveness, surrender to Him their lives. For those of you who are burdened for others, could you imagine starting your prayer for them by saying, Now, first, God, I want to tell you about all my obedience and why this is the reason that you should answer everything that I'm about to ask for them. That's the way Jesus prays in verses 6 to 11, which reveals to us something mighty and magnificent and something wonderful about our Redeemer, that he is a perfect high priest and he knows it full well. He is a spotless Savior. He is a righteous Redeemer. This is the evening before He would be crucified, just like those unblemished lambs in the Old Testament whose throats would be slit, whose blood would be poured upon the mercy seat, the altar in the Holy of Holies. Jesus knows that He is a perfect, sinless substitute for sinners. So in our sermon overview of this whole chapter just a few weeks ago, I listed eight ground reasons, eight substantial foundational reasons for Jesus' intercession for his disciples. He gives the reasons, then he gives the request. Let me just list for you the eight, and then I want to specify for you two of the eight. Look at verses 6 through 11. Reason 1, verse 6, the Father gave the disciples to the Son. Reason 2, this will be one we focus on, Jesus manifested God's name to them. 3, verse 6, Jesus disciples have kept the Father's Word. Verse 7, number 4, Jesus' disciples know that everything that belongs to Jesus came to Him from the Father. Verse 8, number 5, the second one and final one we'll focus on, Jesus gave the Father's words to His disciples. Verse 8, number 6, Jesus' disciples believed that Jesus came from God and was sent by Him. Verse 10, number 7, Jesus has been glorified in the disciples. And verse 11, number 8, Jesus is leaving the disciples in the world to return to his Father in glory. So as you collect those eight, verses 6 through 11, you can see that Jesus mentions two aspects of his obedience that produced corresponding fruit of obedience in his disciples. This is the way Christianity works. 
Jesus does the work. You reap the benefit. The two aspects of Jesus' obedience in verses 6 through 11 are, number one, Jesus manifested the Father's name, verse 6, and number two, Jesus spoke the Father's words, verse 8. Focus on both of those phrases with me for just a moment. Verses 6 to 7, because Jesus manifested the Father's name to the disciples, they therefore, verse 6, kept the Father's word. And came to know that everything that belongs to Jesus came to him from God, verse 7. The effect was rooted deeper in Jesus' obedience. The effect in the disciples rooted in the obedience of Christ. So the act of Jesus' obedience in manifesting the Father's name to his followers resulted in those two benefits that I just listed. Keeping the Father's word, knowing that everything that Jesus has came from the Father. Those were benefits in the lives of Jesus' followers because of his obedience. Verses 8 to 10, we see the second. Because Jesus spoke the Father's words to his disciples, they therefore believed that Jesus came from God, verse 8, and Jesus has thus been glorified in them, verse 10. So for today, I want to focus with you for just a moment on the cause, the root that Jesus emphasizes rather than the effect. The ground reasons that led to the good results. The root being healthy will correspond into the fruit being good. Notice the first big reason. Verse 6, Jesus manifested the Father's name. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. There's no bigger blessing. Does this sound like church talk to you? Spiritual mumbo jumbo? There's no bigger blessing for you possible in the universe than God. Jesus' primary work of obedience is that he successfully accomplished giving God to men. He gave a true knowledge of God to men, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. You may not feel it, you may have never thought it, you may not believe it, but your greatest need is is not to get your bills paid next month, or that project done at the office, or your kids whipped into shape, or your relationship with another human being restored. Your greatest need is not A little more happiness, a little more leisure, an A on that test, a passing grade to get out from under the tyranny of this or that. Your greatest need is a greater view of God. That is the greatest need in your life. You think too little of God. He does not have enough weight in your life. You let complaint roll off your tongue every day. You slander, you criticize, you complain, you murmur, you grumble, you live in the flesh, you don't seek God's face, you don't love his word, you don't live in prayer, you don't walk in the spirit, you don't love other Christians, you don't share the gospel because you have too little of you of God. That's your problem. And that's my problem. So what does Jesus do about the problem? He gives the true God to men. He knows the biggest problem. 
Don't skip past the fact that the first mark of Jesus' ministry to the men whom the Father gave him out of the world is that he made God known to them. Well, every Christian would say, who truly knows God in Christ, I don't know him like I wish I did, and I don't know him as fully as I one day will, but yes, I do know the name of Jesus' Father. Not a God of our own imagination, the God whose name Jesus makes known. Precious few in the whole world value the name of God rightly. But Jesus knew that the knowing of God, according to who He truly is, His name, His character, His reality, that's the most crucial matter in the world. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important in your life than a true knowledge of God. Verse 3 says you go to hell without it. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you don't know Him, you perish. To know the name of God biblically means that you know Him as He is, what He is like, the truth of His nature, the beauty of His character. And Jesus is unabashedly declaring to God that He caused the name of God to be known to His disciples. In the Old Testament, we find a lot about God's name. One indicting verse about what I estimate to be over a million people, the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, a whole generation, who Hebrews 3 says died in their unbelief. I take that to mean most of Israel perished. One indicting statement about them in the Old Testament is in the Psalms where it says, Israel knew God's works. They saw the sea split. They walked on the dry ground. They saw the pillar of fire, fire cloud. They ate the manna. They ate the quail. They drank the water. Israel knew God's works. Moses knew his ways. Do you know God? Apart from a true knowledge of God through Christ, all men perish. That's why, Lord willing, next Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m., our 7th and 8th graders in some classroom back there are starting a series on the character of God. Middle school rooted, 7th and 8th graders, I challenge you to wake up early, get to church on time. Brother Derek McClarty will be leading a Bible study for you on the one true God. Why? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Do you know Him? The Psalms say in chapter 9, those who know your name will put their trust in you. You can't trust somebody you don't know. Jesus makes God known to you. To be specific in our application to our lives, we could ask from verse 6, not do you know God, do you know Jesus' Father? 
No one, John said, has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the heart of the Father, the Lord Jesus, has made Him known to us. John 1.18, Matthew 1.27, Jesus in prayer. How do you like this verse? Matthew 11.27, Father, I want to thank You. This is why Jesus prays. Thank You, God, that You have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to to babes. For thus it was well-pleasing in Your sight. No one knows the Son, Jesus prayed, except You, Father. And no no one knows You except Me, the Son, and anyone to whom He chooses to reveal Him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, if you don't know God in Christ, you don't know God at all. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1, in Him the fullness of deity. All of God dwells bodily. Colossians 2, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. John 14, that's why the Old Testament prophets would pray things like this. Isaiah 26, 8, your name and your renown is the desire of our souls. Do you salivate to want to know God more? Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. So when Jesus asserts in his prayer, I have manifested your name, the men whom you gave me, I believe he means what the Bible always means by the name of God. His true character, His nature, His perfections, His attributes, His glory. To know God's name biblically is to know God as He is. Not just a list of titles, but names that reveal character. Do you know Him? So in our first point about Jesus founding His prayer on His obedience, our first consideration, I'm closing with this. I'm trying to press home that any and every concept you have of God that is conceived apart from Christ Jesus is nothing more than a figment of your imagination. Any God that you suppose to know apart from knowing Him in the Lord Jesus Christ is an idol, not fashioned with your hands, but with the thoughts of your mind. We must know God, verse 3, if we want eternal life, and the one true God cannot be known, verse 3, apart from the Son whom He has sent, or verse 6, the Son making His name known to you. So not only does Jesus assert that He had made God's name known, and therefore the Father should answer the requests He's going to offer later, but Jesus also asserts something else about His obedience as the ground reason that the Father should answer His request. That is, verse 8, He spoke the Father's words. So He made the Father's name known, and He also, verse 8, spoke the Father's words, for the words which you gave Me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and believed that you sent Me. Every single word, every syllable Jesus spoke was what Peter summarized as John 6, 68, the words of life. After three and a half years of drinking from the artesian well of Christ's pure words, the 11, we're told here in verse 8, were irrevocably convinced everything He says 
is exactly God's word. They truly understood that Jesus came from the Father and was sent by him. Verse 8. There's so many applications of Jesus only speaking God's words to every person on the planet and to believers in Christ in particular. To every person on the planet, his words are going to judge us. He will judge us by his words. That's the standard. It's not going to move. Don't you love that God doesn't move the goalpost? He tells us on the front end the standard. But to believers, let me ask about your mouth. James says this, one of the smallest muscles in our body, our tongue, can set the whole world on fire. Let me ask you about your mouth. Is it consecrated? The Bible asks you questions about your mouth. With the same mouth, do you bless God and curse men? That's an unconsecrated mouth. Jesus told us that it comes out of our heart. Your mouth that's why Peter teaches us places like 1 Peter 4.11. I pray it almost every Sunday before I stand to preach or in our little huddle for whoever's preaching. 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. Let him who speaks speak as if it were the utterances of God so that God will get the glory through Jesus Christ. This is so deep when Jesus says, the words I spoke are God's own words, the words you gave me I gave to them. It's so deep, but we're meant to know something of its depths because it's in the book. Go with me here in considering Jesus only speaking the words of God. When Jesus talked, Jesus is saying to his father that the disciples understood something about his, Jesus' relationship to the father. The eternal relationship that Jesus shared with the father. Because of my words, they believed that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. They believed the whole mission of salvation that Jesus came to accomplish through his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back to glory. They believe because of the words of Jesus. There's no other way, friends, to come to believe in Christ, to have a saving relationship with Jesus, to be forgiven of your sin, than by his words. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, and hearing the testimony concerning Christ. The words of Scripture, the words of the Savior, you must have those words believingly to be saved. That's why it's so precious that we find repeated in John's gospel sentences like this. John 7, Jesus answered and said to them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Or John 8, when you lift up the Son of Man, that's the cross, then you will know that I am he, I am God, I am the I am, and that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Nobody's had a more consecrated mouth than Jesus. His was perfectly consecrated. And who are we to profess to be walking with him when we have an unconsecrated tongue? 
So thus far, we've asked two searching questions, and I only have one more. Do you know Jesus' Father's name? And second, do you have a consecrated mouth? I could ask that second question more broadly. Do you understand yourself to have been given to God the Son by God the Father? Did you notice that Jesus manifested the name of God to the men whom God gave him out of the world? They were just like everybody else. And so were you. But in God's eternal counsels, he was pleased to set his affection on a remnant of humanity, a tithe of the earth, to make of them objects of his grace. And the Father gives to the Son these men, and the Son in turn gives to these men the greatest gift in the universe, namely God. So I could just ask the two questions this way. Do you know Jesus' Father's name? Do you? Do you know his character? Do you know what the Father of Jesus is like? And has Jesus made him known to you? And second, do you understand yourself fundamentally, who you are, your identity, your deepest identity to have been given to Jesus by the Father? Our second consideration comes from verses 9 to 11, after Jesus founds, grounds his prayer upon his own obedience, in verses 9 to 11, he, he doesn't ask any requests, he just focuses his prayer upon a particular subset of humanity. Notice it, he focuses his intercession upon his own. Look at verse 9. I mean, if your Bible doesn't mess with you, just read it a little more carefully. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. He focuses his intercession upon his own after he founds his intercession upon his obedience. He specifies, doesn't he, that he's praying for some, he's not praying for all. This is never going to cease to be a point of contention in a pagan world. But no matter how much men rebel against the truth, the truth stands nonetheless. Jesus only represents before the Father those who belong to Him. Now this gets twisted and contorted. Every truth is subject to potential distortion. And Does Jesus demand from sentences like this that we not pray for some or not make a bona fide offer of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ to all men? Does, does this mean that our intercession should somehow be reserved only for the select few that we think are worthy of our prayers? No. God's Word tells us unabashedly and, and clearly that, that God so loved this sin-rotten world that He gave His Son in the stead of ruined sinners so that whosoever believes may in him have everlasting life. But I'm with J.C. Ryle and a host of Christian history who said things like this, I maintain firmly that Jesus does a special work for those who believe, which he does not do for others. 
He quickens them by His Spirit, calls them by His grace, washes them in His blood, justifies them, sanctifies them, keeps them, leads them, continually intercedes for them that they may not fall. If I did not believe all this, I should be a very miserable, unhappy Christian. You see, what we're finding here in Jesus focusing His intercession, not indiscriminately on every person who ever lives, but on a select few whom the Father had given Him, what we see here is that nobody, nobody, nobody is going to have a favorable meeting with God unless they have Christ as their representative righteousness. You see, you're going to meet God. That's not up for debate. You're, You're going to stand before Him. The question is, will you have a favorable meeting? If so, you need an intercessor. You have to have an advocate. You need an alien righteousness. You need somebody who will stand in your place and represent you. And all for whom Jesus intercedes not only will not perish, they cannot because Jesus stands as their representative before the Father. The reason, this was Jim's prayer earlier, He prayed the sermon so succinctly that if we all would have got it, we could have just gone home. We stand in faith to the end because there's one who stands in heaven in the gap for us before the Father. What's happening in John 17 is Jesus is functioning priestly. He's the great high priest. And he's representing particular people before God. He is identifying those for whom he intercedes. John's gospel is replete with this theme. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus. He's the way. The New Testament would repeat, he's the only mediator, the only representative between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5. The reason that Christians will never perish, this is so precious to the Christian faith, no other religious construct has anything like it. The reason that Christians will never perish is because Jesus, Jesus never ceases to intercede for us, Hebrews 7. But it's amazing. I think amazing means not possible, so it's almost amazing (laughs) that He leaves us in the world because He knows that there's something infinitely better for those who taste the all-surpassing sufficiency and superiority of Christ to be better than the world. He leaves us here to show His all-surpassing superiority and His all-sufficient grace to preserve us faithful to the end and to use us as His ambassadors in the world. This is almost amazing that He doesn't take us after our initial conversion and beam us up to heaven, but he leaves us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's specific about that. We're going to dive into the specific prayer of sanctification for his followers. Look, Look at verse 10. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. Later, specifically, he expressly states he's not asking that we be taken out of the world but be kept from the evil one. He's praying for the 11 by 
extension for, for any and every believer. But verse 10, try to fathom the depths of this verse. Just look at it for a minute. Turn it forward and backward and see if you can find the edges or the bottom. Can you fathom the depths of verse 10? Could anybody pray that verse in full? Now, every Christian can pray it in part. Everything that belongs to me, God, is yours. I give you everything. That's right. That's what anybody who understands God would say. But what about the rest of the verse? Everything that's yours is mine. There's nobody else other than someone who's tantamount, tied for first place with God who could say that. Nobody else except somebody who's divine could say, all that is true of you is also true of me. He's not talking about his stuff. He's talking about his essence. Everything that's mine is yours and everything that's yours is mine. It's a radical expression of Jesus' deity. And he puts right on the heels of that concerning the 11. I have been, verse 10, glorified in them. That's the 11. As the disciples came to understand who Jesus is, to trust his words as the very words of God, to believe upon him as the Messiah promised in the pages of the Old Testament, Jesus received their worship. He was glorified in them. How do you glorify something? You glorify stuff every day. You've already glorified two or three or 10 or 50 things today. How do you glorify something? You honor it appropriately. That's what it means to glorify something. How do you give glory to something? You don't make it more glorious. You acknowledge for what it is. And Jesus is saying, they glorify me. I'm glorified in them. They're honoring Christ as the Savior that God declared him to be. Don't you love when Jesus speaks of these 11 men before the face of the Father in heaven and what he does is he exults over their love to him. I've been glorified in them. They kept my word. They were so feeble in faith. But Jesus praises his Father for having been glorified in them. He knows that these men have a true love to Christ, true faith in the Lord Jesus. He knows that the ember of God-given faith is soon going to be fanned into a blazing inferno of Jesus-exalting love when they meet Him just a few days from now, risen from the dead. This is why we need to pay careful attention to verse 11. As I was saying earlier, in the mind of God and therefore the prayer of Jesus, it's better for you that he leave you and I in this sin-torn world, sin -torn world after saving us than immediately remove us from it. Why? Why? It, it, verse 11, it, it's mainly to show his power in our life. Nobody's making it to the end believing the gospel apart from the omnipotent power of God based on the prayer life of Jesus accomplished by the work of the Spirit. Having died on the cross to save his own from the penalty of our sin, 
The Father and the Lord Jesus have dispatched the Holy Spirit to save us from the power of sin. Jesus leaves us in the world not only to make us holy, that's that's part of it, demonstrating His gospel-purifying power in our lives. That's what your life should look like. Let me say the sentence again. The demonstration of the gospel power of Jesus in you is a reason after saving you He leaves you here. Being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus is not negotiable for Christians. That's why he's leaving us here, in part, but also to make us useful in his service. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't take others out of the world until he saved you through their gospel witness? That's why he left us here as well. Third and finally, verse 11 to 16, there's one thing I want to lay accent on. Jesus seeks his father's protection for his friends. So he founds his prayer on his obedience. He focuses his prayer on his followers. And he seeks his father's protection for his friends. As I count it, there's only four things Jesus prays for in all of chapter 17. I know I've shared with our church family through our little gadget 10 or 12 requests, but there's really four things. That they be kept, verse 11 to 16, sanctified, verse 17 to 19, unified, verse 20 to 23, and glorified, verse 24 to 26. There's some specifics in there, but be kept, sanctified, unified, glorified. That's what he prays. I want to touch kept as we close. Verses 11 to 16, look at 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. He's praying for his father to preserve the faithful, the, uh, the disciples' faith. But, but, but notice who he addresses. Verse 11, there's only one time in all four Gospels that Jesus addresses his father this way, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. He's praying for the preservation, the keeping of the disciples by the Father. That is, keep them to remain holy in the midst of a hostile and God-hating world. So who would be better to appeal to than the Holy One to keep us holy in the midst of a sin-torn world? Jesus knows the character of God, and it's like he's taking a gigantic eternal syringe and injecting it into the heart of God and pulling the character of God and trying to inject it into the lives of his people. God, give them what you're like. Make them holy. Keep them. Certainly keep them from sin. Keep them from defecting from the faith. Keep them, Father. Don't let them make shipwreck of their faith. Don't let them, Hebrews 2, just fall asleep and drift away from Christ and wake up one day and wonder why they're a million miles from shore. Keep them from falling prey to the wiles of the devil. He makes that clear. Verse 15, keep them from being charmed like the snake seducer by temptation. Keep them from living a life of sin. 
Guard their internet search history, please, Jesus. Please, Father. Make their IP address holy. Make their thought life holy. Give them yourself. Holy Father, keep them. In the times of trials and soon coming fierce persecution that they're going to face, keep them. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, verse 15, but keep them from the evil one. What a mighty prayer. Jesus knew how weak they were. He knew these men didn't have the power in and of themselves, neither do we, to make it believing to the end. When I fear my faith will fail, He will hold me fast. Jesus knew that nothing and no one is more powerful than God, so He appeals to the King of the ages to exert His mighty power to roll up the sleeves of His righteous right arm and to lay hold on the people the Father had given to Him. It's been said many times, it's not so much thy hold on Christ which saves thee, but His hold on thee. What does it mean to be kept in God's name. Do you see that? Verse 11, keep them in your name. Now, do 1 Corinthians 13 with me. I'm not exempting myself. Let's do this for just a moment. Examine your faith. See if you're in the faith. Test your faith right now. Keep them in your name. That is, Jesus is asking his Father for everyone who believes in him, certainly represented here by the 11, extending to us all, that you would have a living, vibrant relationship with God, an ever-deepening communion with his Father. That's what Jesus wants for his people, and that's what he's praying for here. Is that you? Holy Father, keep them in your name. To abide in the name of God is 1 John 1, 3 lived out. Fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Communion with God. It is walking in the light. And the byproduct is joy. Jesus said that While he was here, he was keeping the disciples. He guarded them. Here he's asking as he departs from the world for his father to keep them. And he wants them to be kept that they may have his joy filled up in their life. I I know the world is telling you what's going to make you happy if you could get this or that. If A, B, or C would change, then X, Y, and Z would really, really scratch the itch of your desires. I know that the grass greener on the other side narrative just never ceases to pummel us all. We think that joy is elusive. But Jesus, Jesus, is telling his father the night before he dies for us. That he's saying all these things so that we can have that deep-seated satisfaction, this joy. It's not elusive. Joy is not 
obscure or vague. It's not elusive. It doesn't run from us the closer we get, provided we seek for joy in the right place. Joy is not a thing. It's a person. If you have Jesus, you have joy. His joy filling you up is what happens with people who walk in fellowship with Him, come what may. The joy of walking with God no matter the cost. That's a joy that exceeds all worldly joys. To put that another way, if God gave you everything you ever wanted and withheld Christ from you, you would still be miserable. The flip side of that coin is so gloriously true. If God withholds from you everything you could possibly want and gives you Christ and Him alone, you would be eternally satisfied. Jesus knows that. Our greatest need is God. So He gives us God's name and He gives us His own joy. Let's close where it closes this sober reality. Not all the disciples made it, did they? Not all the disciples made it. Not all the New Testament professors of faith made it, did they? Some went out from us because they were not part of us. Simon the sorcerer looked good right at the beginning, but he split hell wide open. Here we look at Judas. It's like the two thieves on the cross crucified flanking Jesus. One of them to keep us sober and remember that nobody makes it to glory apart from the mediatorial work of Jesus dying and that nobody's too lost and nobody's too far gone to be saved by His almighty redeeming power. But here it's Judas. None of them perished, Father, except for one. One of them perished. The son of perdition so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. This is so sober. I don't think I have to say a lot to drive the point home. We've actually labored this verse many times in Grace Church's 15 and a half year history. One of the 12 split hell wide open. Judas Iscariot was not part of the preserved remnant who was kept by the Father according to the prayer of Jesus. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the Scripture would be fulfilled just a few moments after this prayer. I'm talking literally the same calendar day. After this prayer is uttered, Judas comes marching with his pockets full of silver coins into the Garden of Gethsemane with 600 soldiers carrying torches and lanterns and spears. He's got chief priests and scribes If you look at the footnote of your Bible in John chapter 18, just a few paragraphs after where we are right now, you'll find that there's no less than 600, probably upwards of 1,000 people coming to arrest the Lord Jesus as he's sweating drops of blood, pleading for the redemption of mankind. And Judas, leading their charge, comes and betrays the Savior with a kiss. That is just a few moments after this. And none of that took Jesus by surprise. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus knew from the beginning, John 6, 64, who it was who would betray Him. He picked Judas, knowing what would happen. So that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Zechariah eleven thirteen, Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 109, 8, 
and a number of other places, no less than a thousand years before Judas was born, God determined his fate so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. When somebody defects from the faith who look like they started well, when somebody's so in with the followers of Jesus that you would hand them the money bag, trusting them with all the keys in the kingdom, and then they fall away, it's because they never believed to begin with. Holy Father, keep them. He will do that. All for whom Jesus prays. And all others, all others, all others, all others will perish in their Christ-belittling sin. What do we do? What, what do we do? Just listen again. This is where we started. I want you to listen. Eavesdrop on God talking with God. Be quiet, be still, and listen. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So, so what do we do? Believe, verse 6, that Jesus perfectly reveals God the Father to the world. Do you know Jesus' Father's name? Believe, verse 8, that Jesus speaks the words of God. He reveals God perfectly. God in the flesh, making God known. He's the Logos. He's the Word of God incarnate. Do you hear God's voice in Christ? And can you see God's heart for you in the cross? This is where Jesus is headed after He lays out this prayer before the Father Arrested by that cohort in Gethsemane a few hours later, paraded through the unjust court system, beaten, whipped, and eventually tacked to a cross. Probably about 12 hours. Happened at 9 a.m. 12 hours or less from the time he prays this prayer. Do you, do you, do you hear Jesus pray and do you see God's heart for you in the cross? Listen to Jesus intercede for His own. Not, not for the world, but for His own. Do you belong to Him? Have you fled from the wrath to come in the ark of the cross of Christ? Have you gone there for God's mercy? Have you laid your arms down at the foot of the cross of Jesus and said, you're right. A lot of people say a lot of bad things about me, God, but you've said the worst. I'm so bad, your son had to die for my forgiveness. There's no other way. That's the worst that can be said of a man. And can you hear God's response? I'm demonstrating my love for you in that while you're a sinner, I sent Christ to die for you. He came to set you free and to welcome you into his everlasting arms. Do you trust not your own goodness and ability to live out the Christian life, but the Father's power to preserve you holy in His name? And Jesus prayed in this. I didn't even get to touch it. It was the skip, skip, skip section. That you would be one. That you would be one with His people. 
He, he prayed it in this section. He's going to labor it in the next. Are there any believers who you've offended with your sin? Are, are, are there any for whom Jesus died, as Romans 14 said, who you would be willing to destroy? Would you repent? Because you can't get right with Him and not receive His grace to be willing to humble yourself to get right with others. Trust the Father's power to preserve you holy through any and every obstacle, including persecution like these men would face just a few days later. Trust the Father's power to preserve you holy in His name, united to His people until we see His lovely face. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for making God known. Otherwise, nobody would ever know. So cause us to know the to know the one true God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.